edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the architects, one of uh, one of the uh, true legends of the genre, Steve Diggle of the band The Buzzcocks, also a flag of convenience and of Steve Diggle's solo stuff and Buzzcocks FOC. We'll get into all that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is where my, my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do. For the show here, buddy. I love you. And uh, he will get the message to me, and uh, we can communicate that way. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way of doing that is just by telling everyone you know about it, letting everyone know that you know about this podcast right here. You can also support it by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes or on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Or you can uh, head over to patreon.com slash turnedoutapunk and check out the stuff that goes on over there. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we love what you do, but uh, just don't do it out of your own pocket anymore. And uh, they they helped me cover the costs here, which has been great because podcast costs keep going up. You know, it's, it's so weird. And it's, uh, I got, I got another bill today for something anyway, but that is uh, great that I uh, have support to take care of that stuff. So thank you very much to them for that. All right. On to today's show today on the show, a huge one, a, a, a monstrous episode for me here, because I, I really rack my brain to think of bands more influential than this one. Today on the show is, of course, Steve Diggle of the Legends, the Legends, the Buzzcocks. The Buzzcocks, of course, are one of the first punk bands uh, when it really starts going. One, definitely one of the first UK punk bands, that's for sure. And also credited as being the first band to put out the first punk rock DIY single. Now, people that listen to this show know that that is definitely debatable on, you know, who got the first one out and where, but it's not really debatable that they were the first UK punk band to put out a DIY single. I guess it depends if your definition of punk includes proto-punk stuff. But anyway, we give them the credit. <laughs> give them the credit for what they've done. And uh, they also have written some of the greatest songs of all time. Like, they, uh, they really have given us... Um, uh, you know, like some of the greatest mixtape songs, some of the greatest uh, get-together songs, breakup songs, even political songs. And uh, I love this band. Anyone that listens to the band that I play in, of course, knows that that influence runs deep with us. And I, I, don't, I don't think you have to look very far to find a band that's been influenced by the Buzzcocks. Now, the Buzzcocks, all this being said, uh, they have a brand new box set of singles on Domino Records. Domino Records, of course, being the home of Leatherface and some other bands, you know, some Arctic Monkeys band and stuff like that. But for here, they will be forever known as the home of Leatherface. And of course, also the home of the Buzzcocks and Peter Perret and all that, all that stuff. Lawrence, Lawrence, uh, who runs that label, was thanked in the Blitz single, right? So anyway, this Buzzcocks Buzz box set is out now and it covers... Um, all the greatest singles. They're all reproduced here beautifully. There's a book. It's it's a it's an amazing set. I I own actually you know what I went through looking before I recorded this and I don't actually own as many of the singles by the Buzzcocks as I used to own. 
<laughs> you know, I, I still have a bunch, but there are definitely some holes in my collection. And so uh, I think I might need this box set, you know, because tracking down the originals, it's costly. It takes some time, you know, conditions always a factor, but here they all are in one convenient set. So, uh, so pick that up if you don't have those singles or check out the Buzzcocks. If you've never checked out the Buzzcocks, what are you doing with your life? They're, you're just denying yourself one of the great pleasures that's it. There is, uh, anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Oh, I do have some notes. Of course. I, I definitely should get to some notes because on the episode, I mentioned that I'm going to, uh, quote unquote, uh, reprimand Walter. I think I say for, uh, not giving Steve a, a copy of the Gorilla Biscuits cover. I shot Walter a text afterwards and uh, mentioned, you know, that I that Steve liked his cover and all this sort of stuff. And and Walter is very much uh, excited to send Steve Diggle a Gorilla Biscuits care package. So do not worry that that uh, that has been addressed and taken care of. And I think that's actually the only note. I thought I had more notes than that, but nope, that's it. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy Steve Diggle on turned out a punk steve thank you so much for coming on the show it's a pleasure to be here pleasure to be well at, at the risk of repeating myself and what i just said to you off air you are a unbelievably huge influence on myself and the music i make and, and everyone that's been on this show i think just about so thank you for that oh you're welcome you know it's kind of um What's nice, and it's a great compliment after all these years, is we kind of, <clears throat> you know, we kind of a, a band's band in a way. It's, you know, you, when you sound, you make a record, you think, you know, that's a little postcard to connect with somebody, you know, with the fans and or people about it. And, um, you don't realize, I, 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 you know, it always amazes me how many bands we've influenced. You know what I mean? A lot of band sides, like we were just speaking earlier. And um, that's a great compliment, you know. Oh, absolutely. And and it's not, you know, and like a lot of bands that are popular, you know, they're popular in one country or one place. Your sound went around the world. Like I've been around the world and seen bands do Buzzcocks covers like everywhere I've been. Yeah. I mean, um, that's truly amazing as well. Soon we started off in Manchester and we thought if we get a gig in London <laughs> and, you know, a few years later, we're in the States and like people have heard of us there. And then you go to Australia or, you know, you go to Rio or Argentina, Buenos Aires, and they know you're there, you know. Um, and we we was kind of doing this when there was no social media, no internet. So it always amazed me how, how people, you know, how everybody got to know them. But I guess it was through the magical 45s and the 33 albums, you know. But, um, yeah, it's true. I mean, I've seen somebody show me stuff on the internet of um, you know, there's many covers, as you know, of uh, our songs and that. But uh, I saw, I think it was like in Germany, uh, a guy doing like a a band, a three-piece, doing an instrumental of harmony in my head, you know. The guy's playing all the melody on the guitar, everything, you know. It's, <laughs> oh, that blew my mind. It was like, wow. You know, it's like the Ventures uh, doing the buzzcocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back to before all that, which is, uh, Steve, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever heard the word or came across the genre? Well, you know, back in 76, things were getting a bit restless. You had all the progressive bands, um, kind of like, yes, I've met them since and stuff. But, um, um, you know, it was kind of like singing Brown Mushrooms in the Sky. And they, that kind of 
gone full circle. And, you know, I was coming up to the age of 20 thinking, like, you know, we need to do, like, maybe short songs, smash the guitars, you know, kind of tell the audience to fuck off. <laughs> well, you know, it was not, you know, it's like a, a shared experience with the audience. It's like, let's get some excitement here and let's get something relevant to us. So it was kind of like that. Then I heard about the Sex Pistols and we brought the Sex Pistols to, to Manchester. And the uh, thing was that all the journalists had kind of, you know, jumped on the train to come to Manchester to review the Sex Pistols because it was going to be like their first big breaks on all the papers over here, the enemies and stuff like that, and the Sounds magazine. And um, lo and behold, when they got there, uh, this band, local band called the Buzzcocks came out, and that kind of blew their minds, and it put us on the map as well, you know. So they'd come to review the Sex Pistols, and I thought, wow, there's people in Manchester doing this thing, you know. <laughs> so that's how I kind of, that's how we got into it. From the first gig, it put us on the map, but you know, it's all about time and space and things in the atmosphere. It was like, there was a sort of frustration of, you know, the youth needed some exciting music, really. And um, we all kind of met and did that show. And, um, you know, it it, it it was just dynamic. When when we got together, we you just kind of knew from the first rehearsal that we didn't have to try in a way. There was some magic in the band, you know. And I think, like, with all great bands... Um, there's that magic there where even though you do put a lot of work and do things, it's like when you get together, it just comes together like that, you know. And that's what kind of happened. It was very dynamic, you know. And, of course, when we got on the stage, it blew people's minds. As well as ours, the first gig, it's like, wow, <laughs> this thing's got a life of its own as well, you know. <laughs> it's dragging <laughs> us along with it, even though we're driving the train, you know. <laughs> Going back before that, what kind of music were you into growing up? Well, you know, as a kid, I, you know, I was like a, from the 60s generation. So, you know, at seven years old, I heard the first Beatles album. Um, this girl had it across the road. I could only afford the EP, you know, like Twist and Shout and the singles. It, you know, there's a lot of money back in those days when, you, when you're seven years old, you know. And um, 962 in the Beatles and that. And then all of a sudden you're like, and she had the first Beatles album and the first Bob Dylan album. Now, I kind of got the Beatles for the harmonies, but I also thought, this guy Bob Dylan's telling me something as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I'm still trying to figure out what he's telling us now. But, um, you know, Bob had a big influence on me as well, really. I thought that, it just shows the magic of the grooves. I thought, I'm seven years old, you know. Um, I, but I know that guy's telling me something as well. And then before I knew it, it's like the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Kinks, you know, all them 60s bands started coming out, you know, like week after week there'd be a single from all those kind of bands. And so I just hit that at the right time, I guess, you know. That's all I knew, that like that was my music, my generations of growing up with all that. So <clears throat> that was um, a, a lot of influence, you know. Um, then it all went psychedelic and stuff with the flower power and you know, Woodstock and all that kind of stuff. You kind of go through those journeys. So they got to like Led Zeppelin, you know, the, you know, the Beatles split up in 79 and then suddenly like Led Zeppelin were there in 1970, 71, you know, um, and things like that. So um, 
um, I kind of hit that sort of classic journey, really. Uh, and then, like I say, it got to the progressive bands, and then it kind of sort of burnt out. It, there was like a drought for years, you know? Yeah. It was like the grapes of Roth, you know? Nothing <laughs> nothing musically was growing, you know? <laughs> and um, suddenly it was kind of like, you know, it's time just to um, thrash the guitars, do some words that are relevant to us, and create some kind of excitement, really. And that's where we came in, you know. We'd, um, the, the Sex Pistols were like the catalyst, really. They kind of, they started, and I think we started about two days before The Clash, so suddenly you had the Sex Pistols, The Clash, uh, you had The Jam and The Damned and The Buzzcocks. That was kind of the nucleus of British rock, you know, mm -hmm. uh, British punk rock. And... Um, when we started, the Ramones' first album come out, which was a huge influence on us as well, you know. And then if we go back as well, because we'd, we'd grown up with Bowie, David Bowie and stuff like that, Lou Reed, we loved the 70s with all the uh, the Andy Warhol scene, the New York scene. Um, um, suddenly, you'd kind of heard about the MC5 and, uh, and the Stooges and stuff like that, you know. So where were you hearing about the Stooges and the MC5? Was that through the British Music Press? Were they getting talked about it around then? Yeah, it was kind of like through the British Music Press and um, and David Bowie, really, saying about the Stooges and oh, yeah. and stuff like that. And you kind of... But <clears throat> you couldn't just, in Manchester, walk in a record shop and say, can I have the MC5 kick out the jams? Yeah, know? of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> You know, I think even they was only selling very few records in those days, you know. Mm -hmm. Even though there was kind of no money, but it wasn't that known at the time that much, you know. I mean, it wasn't like, didn't seem, seem to reach out. And I think really what we did with the punk rock, it kind of highlighted that, you know, they were there doing this kind of thing in their own way at that time, you know. So eventually, during the punk rock days, you managed to get, old of MC5 albums and all that, you know. But it was, like, very difficult, <laughs> which is weird now looking back. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what about like, the English stuff that's kind of going around at that time that's kind of like the precursor to punk, or that's been taken up at least as being the precursor to punk, like stuff like the Pink Fairies or Dr. Feelgood and that kind of scene? Oh, yeah, there was that. There was kind of what they called a pub rock scene or like a bar scene, you know. Mm -hmm. You had Dr. Feelgood, you had Brinsley Schwartz and that. And they were all kind of doing, like... A kind of R and B based, uh, um, you know, sort of R and B based, sort of lively, you know, uh, souped up blues music, really, you know. Yeah. Rim and Bruce, you know, another great influence, Chuck Berry on me. So you, you could hear a bit of Chuck Berry in them and that kind of thing. You know, it was that kind of 12 bar stuff with a little bit of venom and that sort of barroom kind of thing, really. But Don't You Feel Good were pretty cool, you know, I think. And, um, even though they'd been going around a while, they were kind of adopted by the punk rock scene as well because, you know, everything was really slow before 76. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got Jesse Colin Young doing an album for five years in a treehouse in L.A. somewhere. You know? <laughs> you know, it was getting like that. You know, we had that program, the old Grey Whistle Test, and they'd interview these guys and they'd be going like, I'm figuring about three or four years I might do the next album. <laughs> you know, and it was all slow anyway, and a bit self-indulgent in a way. So I think um, in 76, that's uh, kind of broke the back of that. And um, 
I think it, you know, it, it kind of set the world alight. You know, the Ramones were doing that in New York, and um, we were the British side of it doing it all over here. You know, it was kind of like all the bar bands had kind of kind of disappeared, but Doctor Feelgood kind of survived it, and um, mm. um, we kind of took it from there, really. But then we we had a, a different style with it and different, you know stylized it a bit more not self-consciously it was just like well we're the we're the new kids on the block you know <laughs> and um you kind of never thought about them bands you know it was just like you just kind of thought well let's get up and do what we want to do you know we're not here to please anybody we're not kind of you know just hope we connect with people this is what we want to say we thought we were doing the most uncommercial music possible at the beginning you know it was like we're just doing what we want to do we don't know where it's going it might last a week, it might last, you know, a month. Who cares? Let's have it right here and right now. And and that's what we kind of did. But when that punk explosion happened, it's like the outward split, you know, it's like it was all back to year zero. It's like the world's changed, suddenly it's this, you know. Mm-hmm. You couldn't listen to all them old bands for a while, you know. Even though they all did great stuff, you couldn't listen to it for a while. It was like hence a bit of punk rock thing, you know. And out of that, I think everybody got their own identity, you know. Um, the Clash became the Clash and the Buzzcocks became the Buzzcocks. Whereas at the beginning, it was all like, oh, you punk rock bands. But nobody knew the difference between any band at the beginning, you know. But it was about the attitude and energy and all that, you know, the electricity of it all. You guys are definitely the band that comes up on the show from, you know, I've, I've, I've done hundreds of interviews now at this point with different people, but like the band that... I don't know, just brought the melody and the songwriting to that equation. Like, obviously, The Clash had incredible songs, and obviously the Sex Pistols mm. have really memorable songs, but there's just something about the mm. Buzzcocks. But going back and listening to your stuff, it's also the speed that you brought to stuff. Like, you know, The Damned was fast, but there's just something about the speed that you guys have that's just, you know, so so unlike anything else prior to it, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, we managed to cram a lot in and uh, uh, sort of rolling at those speeds yeah we didn't realize that but that that was like youthful energy and electricity you know that was that was like an adrenaline rush you know um so that drove us along and like you said we always had the melodies and um the great little sort of guitar motifs and tunes you know plus the fact it was very different i mean to be honest if you look at the clash and the sex pistols it, it's very sort of rock and roll based you know we kind of brought an experimentation or an angular guitar thing to it, you know, yeah, a bit more sort of distorted noise things. Because we did a lot of German experimental bands like Can and stuff and like things like that. And I guess that rubbed off us in a little bit, you know, a little bit of avant-garde stuff or, or noise, you know. We, 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 we was kind of aware of noise and the importance of feedback and stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But during all this, we never sat down and sort of calculated anything. It all be, it was very organic and natural, you know. That's what was weird. It was just like who we were, what what Pete was feeling and seeing and what I was feeling and seeing had a big part in the buzzcocks in terms of all that, you know. It was like who we were as people, you know. You can teach anybody to play guitar, but it's the way you play it, you know. Yeah. And you don't have to be a great player. You don't... Um, You've just got to be able to connect with a guitar, you know. 
I mean, initially we thought, well, life's not perfect. Why do we have to play the guitar perfect? You know, <laughs> that don't represent life. <laughs> well, it's just so honest that way, right? Well, right, yes. So when we got on the stage or when people heard the songs, it connected with the audience right away, you know, because we was kind of had a kind of realism about it as well. And I think when people hear the records, they, they can see we're not bullshitting it, sh shitting them with some fucking false dream or something, you know. Mm -hmm. We're kind of like talking to them like we're in a bar in a way, you know, right on the record, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. In a sense, it was like, well, these guys are, I can relate to that because they're singing about the human condition, the, the real life things, the shit that happens to you in a melodic way, you know. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and many people could relate to that in their own lives, you know, as well. And it's just like, we're like that too, except we've got these guitars. So I think that connected. And particularly in the States as well. I think somebody was saying to me the other day, I think. Um, you know, America welcomed the Buzzcocks more than any of the punk bands. And I remember when we went over there, it was like we were always well received by uh, the American audiences from the beginning, you know. Mm -hmm. But we could kick ass, you know. And, um, you know, I realized that's what America wanted. And before I ever went to America, I thought, that's where I want to be as well, you know what I mean? <laughs> And the great thing about American audiences, you see, they're looking for a band. I mean, you've got to have the fashions and the style in Britain a bit, which is cool. And American audiences get that. But they also just take it on face value, you know. Yeah. Well, if you... you know, which was a great thing, you know. It's not like, oh, this is the most fashionable band. They must be the best, you know. Mm -hmm. It's... Um, which was, which was quite alleviating. It's like you could go in America and just take it on with the audience and um, they get involved. They don't judge you on things, you know what I mean? In that way, I didn't think, you know. But we, we loved it and we embraced it, you know. And embra America embraced us and that was that was a great exchange, you know. Well, yeah, because you brought those London bands and there's a thing about all those sort of first wave British bands, the you know, that's different about you guys is the fact that they're very performative. It's there's a lot of like dressing up in stage clothes and like you know looking at the buzzcocks and the footage of the buzzcocks and like no wonder it hit in America where it's just it's a lot more authentic and and just and and real and just sort of like tangible. I think for the sensibilities of America when it comes to rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know those things go a long way, and we didn't realize that, but it goes a long way. Like you know. Anybody can see through bullshit and they, they realise we're bullshit. You know, we didn't have Vivian Westwood dressing us up in fancy clothes, you know. It was too expensive. Yeah. We had to go to the thrift store and get stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Which really informs punk rock to this day. Like, it's amazing how, you know, like, you know, you look at the success of pop punk music later on and emo music and all this sort of, like, melodic themed punk rock it's like that mm. all comes from the buzzcocks you know like it's amazing how much of this sort of sensibilities dates back to you guys even the diy single yeah i mean that was like one of the first on the block if not the first i can't remember somebody's status. it is the first i believe but um you know it's seen as a stroke of genius that but it was also a stroke of necessity we kind of we kind of thought well if we went to a record company with this is laugh us out of the building you know <laughs> yeah and um but lo and behold, so we's like, well, we've we've got to we've got to make one, you know, we'll make it ourselves. And it it took a little while to come with that. It's like, 
Well, for five hundred pound, you can have a thousand press. I know in the fifties they did it in the states, but nobody, nobody was thinking about it like thirty years later. Mm-hmm. Not even me for ages. Not even any of us. And it was like, why don't we just do that? And um, and we did, and then it inspired you know other people to do it. Funny enough, after we'd done that one, um, then you had six major record companies sign, trying to sign you up. You know? <laughs> just go back to that first Sex Pistols show. It feels like that Lesser Free Trade show is just so well documented that everyone that was there is kind mm. of remembered. What brought you to that show that night? Because according to legend, you were a mod kid introduced to Howard DeVoto by Malcolm McLaren. Is that right? Yeah, it was Pete. I mean... Um, Peter, nowadays, I, um, there was the first, there was the first show where hardly anybody was there. Yeah, the, le- the the one that like everyone claims to be, but there's only like a few of you yeah, there. But then there was uh, another one. So I don't know which one they claim to be at. But um, me and Pete, um, Pete Shelley was collecting tickets on the door. I was still outside. I was going to kind of form a band like the Who, smash my guitars, and do that was my thing and they had their thing they was influenced a bit by velvet on the ground and stuff like that mm. and um malcolm mclaren said to me that inside here i said yeah, i'm just waiting for a guy to form a band you know i've heard of sex pistols but i've got to meet a guy and i'm going to a bar around the corner and uh um he said no you know they're waiting for you inside i thought i don't know anything about this and i'd phoned a guy up about the paper and they was at Pete and Howard were expecting somebody. <laughs> um, and so um, Pete Shelley was collecting tickets. So I said, I'll, I'll see in the bar upstairs and look a little while when you've done. And we were kind of talking about the same things, but also at cross purposes. I, I thought, I don't remember saying that on the phone. That seems about right, but this doesn't. And um, anyway, we, we got on. Well, and, you know, I met Howard as well there. He was working like the lights or doing something. And um, the guys we supposed to meet, they're probably still sitting outside the free trade hall now. Um, so we've never met the guys we were supposed to meet, and then we all met each other, you know. They met me, I met them. And the next day we did a little rehearsal, you know. Yeah. And from there, it was like we had like a few weeks to get a set together to open up for the Pistols, which really became the legendary one where they all claimed they were there, you know. Mm-hmm. So there were two quite close links. One where we, we met as the Buzzcocks, and the next one we were on the bill, you know. But um, the next day when I met them, we plugged into one tiny little practice amp, and um, all three of us played through that. It was yeah. a terrible noise, but it was going a million miles an hour. <laughs> and um, you just thought, wow, this sounds terrible, but it's beautiful, you know. <laughs> you can't remember. Nobody heard stuff like that at that time. Well, like how long before you played that first show did it come together? Because, like, you know, presumably you play that first show and you've got you've got songs there, right? Yeah. Well, we... Um, um, that. They had a few songs, all got him at it, boredom and all that. And I said, I got this song, Fast Cars. Mm-hmm. And um, then we had some other, I think the set was only 20 minutes. So I, I can't remember how many songs we did. Maybe we did 10, maybe less, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, we had enough songs to get on there for t- 20 minutes, which at the time seemed a long time. 
now that would go with a blink of an eye if I went on the 20 minutes. It's like we're just tuning up, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, um, we, we had enough songs around to, to do this 15 or 20 minute set, you know, and uh, that was enough to, to get on there and um, just let this thing loose, you know. And I remember after thinking, I've never really been on a stage before. And I didn't pay my dues in bars or anything. So um, I, I was real some of these kids around the corner from my house trying to form a band before that. And I thought these kids ain't into it. That's why I was going to meet this other guy. And uh, anyway, we got this together, this, um, you know, we got the songs together for the Sex Pistols show and away we went. At the end of the show, I jumped off into the crowd and ran straight to the bar, you know. <laughs> So I didn't know what to do. I thought I, I was so energized and we all were, you know, and the crowd were, it was like, what the fuck's just happened? You know what I mean? It felt like that. It was like, oh, because, you know, we'd never experienced that. We knew the power of the songs, but we didn't know. And the audience it was shocked that this band from Manchester were gone there and just assaulted all their senses, you know. Yeah. You've got to remember before that, you'd go and see a gig and you'd, like, you'd be entertained. This kind of idea was like, we don't give a fuck what you think, check this out, and people loved it, you know what I mean? <laughs> but that was kind of like the right way. It was kind of like, you know, you hold the painting up, it's like, make your own, you know, Picasso makes a painting, make your own mind up whether you like it or not, rather than trying to please somebody with it, you know? And the audience got that. It's like, you know... Um, and and just connected it right away, you know. So I mean, it was mind blowing that um, that show for that. And um, it's those kind of moments and events that you cannot you, you can't sit down and plan and market those things, you know. It all has to happen it, by things in the universe or whatever it is, you know. Sometimes things happen in life, you know, when you least expect. And that, I think that's what happened with the whole punk rock thing. And particularly with that legendary gig in Manchester, you know, nobody knew it was really going to be like that. Nobody knew what to expect, you know. You didn't know. I think the audience didn't really know what was going to happen. The band didn't know what was going to happen in terms of reaction. And just this explosion. And after that gig, I think the whole world changed. I've said before, like, if they say Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, punk rock really started in Manchester with that gig, you know. I mean, he wasn't born in New York. He wasn't born in LA. He wasn't born in London. It had to be some weird place like Bethlehem, but it was... <laughs> not that I'm getting too religious here, but I ain't religious. But, um, you know, it, it was one of them weird things. It was like, fucking hell, that night changed the world, really, at that moment, you know. No, I agree 100%. And even going back before that show um, to that first show, the Lesser Free Trade show, you look at who was <laughs> in that room that night. There's only like, what, 25 of you, like maybe 30, but every single person there, like people say that about the Velvet Underground's first album, that people bought it and <laughs> all went out and formed bands. But literally, you all went out and formed bands, and they all were like important seminal groups in their respective scenes um, out of that show. Yeah, well, that was a yes. I mean, that 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 is quite amazing as well, isn't it? You 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 know, we do that show, and you don't realise how much it, you, you know you couldn't have envisaged how much it, it influenced the people in the audience. They all went away and formed their own Manchester bands. That that was phenomenal as well, you know. Yeah. Um, 
It, it, that was just incredible, you know. Even Simply Red. Even even McHutnell's there from Simply Red. Like, it's even that comes out of that show. Yeah. Yeah, you could you wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. Oh. <laughs> um, um, you wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. I mean, um, but we kind of got up there, like anybody, you know, kind of the attitude at the time was like, look, anybody can do this. Just get up and do your thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Do what you believe and feel and all that. And um, I think that was really important. You know, there was no kind of rules then. Yeah. You know, but because like I say, before that, the band would get on and, you know, they'd try and impress you and entertain you and you'd have to ask them to clap or, you know, those bands you'd go and see before that, the later 70s bands. And it's like with this, it's like as soon as you struck the first chord, the kids knew what to do in the audience, you know. Mm -hmm. It was just like it, it, it went straight to the heart and soul of them. It's like, fuck, I've got to jump around to this, you know. Yeah. And I, that's what the world needed and that's what the people needed, you know, that show in Manchester, you know, it was like, wow, my life's just fucking changed in a moment. And we don't get them every day. And if you can do that through music sometimes, it's the most incredible thing. And we've all had moments of that one way or another in music where it's like, I'll never be the same again. You know, you hear a certain record, you go, I can never be the same after I've heard that, you know. I'm someone else now. I, I, this is, you know, which is a great, which is a great thing about doing it. You know? And also, we can always relate to the crowd really well, you know, because we didn't have a stage act. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny because when you brought up the fact that you know you had this Who influence and they had yeah. this kind of Velvet Underground, more arty influence, and the, mm. that comes together and it, it describes what the Buzzcocks music is perfectly. But also at the same time, like that is the essence of punk rock. It's like these two worlds meeting and creating something different. Yeah. It was like creating a third really, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, my brother's an art student, so I was very well aware of, uh, you know, Andy Warhol and the New York scene and all that and the Velvet Underground scene. But um, the physicality of, um, you know, I, I love John Lennon's rhythmic playing. John Lennon was a great rhythmic player. He might not have been the best guitarist in the world, but he had something in that right hand. And like Keith Richards has got it as well, you know, something about the rhythm, playing the rhythm. Um, over the years, I learned so much about how powerful a rhythm can be, you know. And, and, and playing the same chords sometimes for night after night, you find it out more about playing the same song and the same chords how it affects you and how you react with different audiences with it. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. But initially it was that kind of, I suppose it was a bit of that Townsend thing now of like, fuck, he just got on there and fucking thrashed the thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you know, I was influenced by Jimmy Page as a kid, you know, but I thought Townsend, he, he just like, give a fuck, you know, to strike the chord and the defiance of striking one chord as everybody in a punk rock band will tell you, including yourself, it's the most amazing feeling in the world. You've only got to strike one chord with a lot of distortion behind it, and it's like, fuck, you know, the heavens have opened. <laughs> so there's that kind of mentality, and then and then there was the refinement of it, the songs, the tunes, and everything else. You know, we started getting down to that then a bit, didn't we? You know, it was, oh, yeah. It was kind of, we kind of like done Spinal Scratch, and we... The next one was Orgasmatic and that. 
Well, Howard left after Spiral Scouts. He only actually did 10 shows with it. I think he was in the band for like four to six months and he said he was leaving. Me and Pete said, we'll carry on. And that's where it changed from there, you know. If you notice, after Orgasm Addicts, our first UK single, um, uh, or officially on the United Artists uh, major label thing, um, we, we released What Do I Get? And that became... An, um, the dueling guitars of me and Pete getting a bit more melodic, yeah. In fact, the real story with that is I had two little cassette players and I dubbed myself, double tracked myself. I had a song called I Might Need You, you know. And he went, I might need you. Do what you want, don't make me blue. Just working words, you know. Mm -hmm. And I played that to Pete. And a couple of days later, I saw him and he said, I've got this song, what do I get? And I said, that's very similar to my <laughs> song. <laughs> I said, fucking up. I still t I still played him going, we've got to sort out the publishing on that, you know. <laughs> but, but at the time, you don't think about things like that. Just like, whatever it works for the man. Having said that, he did put the uh, Only Get Sleepless Nights and their mother chords in it. Yeah. But I said, you took my fucking chorus, man, you know. <laughs> but it, it, that's true. Not many people know that. When I do my book, I'm, I'll go into detail about it. And I, I rubbed my cassette version off. I, I always just say, I could fucking sue you for this because, you know, <laughs> if I had that cassette. But cassettes were expensive then. I only had one, so you'd make a little demo and then you'd use it again, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you say. But, um, you know, that set us on the road to melodic things then, you know. We, then we had the songs like Promises, which was, I mean, that was my song. I wrote home. It was Promises about the government. And I was doing the demo. And you can hear this on... Um, the EMI CD and album chronology, it's got the demos on it. And um, um, I'd left my verse at home, but I thought we're only doing a demo. So I was kind of scat, scat singing the melody, you know, the words to the verses and singing promises. Oh, I'm doing the music, you know, with the bass playing drummer. And, and uh, I think was in the uh, recording room and he said, um, I've just written some uh, verses for that and I said you've turned it into a fucking love song <laughs> <laughs> I said it's supposed to be promises about the government not about some relationship you know um, but having said that when you look back it was a great combination and then you know I said well you, you've got to sing this one now because you know I'm the political one or whatever the social kind of writer rather than the, um, but that kind of works as well but what I'm driving at with that is you know we had what do I get promises and then I don't mind. Um, they start to become melodic and more tuneful and, you know, the classic buzzcocks as we know it, really, I guess, you know. Oh, yeah, your run of singles, it's like probably one mm. of the greatest runs of singles in the history of music. Like, it's just mm. song after song. And it's it's amazing how, you know, like, obviously, Howard goes on and is a, is a classic songwriter in his own right. But the, between the two of you, just the songs you wrote, like, did Fast Cars exist? You mentioned you brought that to the band already. Was that something you were playing in that other band you were jamming with? Like, was that the style of stuff you were doing already? I'd kind of started with them. Yeah, I'd run it through them a few times, you know. And um, when I first met P and Howard, you know, they had Boredom and they had uh, Orgasm Addicts and a few of them other early ones. And I said, I got this song called Fast Cars. You know, I'd played them the music and the chorus, I Hate Fast Cars. And... Um, I read about it in Russia at the time that not many people have got a car. So the opening line was, how 
How in Russia do you come by a car, you know? Something, something, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> it's this kind of thing. And um, But um, I thought, well, Howard's a singer at the time, so Howard said, well, I've got some words. And Peter said, I can add. And so I let them do the verses because I thought, well, he's the singer, he's going to sing it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he might as well do the verses on it. So that's how that came about. After after Fast Cars and Promises, I never left my words at home. <laughs> <laughs> but but at that time as well, it's it was just kind of like it's all what works for the band, you know. It's like okay, well if you've got that and like the song works now, right here and right now, that'll do. Let's venture on, you know. So it's kind of like that. I've I've still got the demo of that somewhere. I've got real to real tape and. In four years, I've still not bothered to plug it in, and, and I'll just put it out for free somewhere on the internet. Um, my early demos of Promises, Autonomy, and Fast Cars. Oh yeah. Before I met, before I met the band, you know. That's amazing. So, like, yeah, what was yeah. informing that sound for you on those? Because those, like, you just named like three of the most classic punk songs ever. Like, what was informing? you to write that stuff prior to even seeing the Sex Pistols or any of that stuff? Well, it was kind of different then. There was, uh, you know, there was a bit slower and me kind of mumbling away and singing and sort of busking through them, you know. Mm -hmm. It's when you took them to to the band, it's like suddenly, you know, the little thing you were strumming at home, suddenly, you know, as you know, it's, you know, it, suddenly it was like you put your fingers in an electric socket and, <laughs> You know, it kind of speeded up from there, really. So, um, so they got you know the band treatment. You know, you, uh, both me and Pete, we, we, well, he he said like whoever writes the chords is like that's gets the credit for the song. I guess you know we come to some loose arrangement of that in the early days, but we'd play them to John Marler, drummer. Johnny goes a bit like this, and he says, I know, and he's like, you've not even heard this one. <laughs> and somehow, he just put it away like he knew the song before he even heard it, you know, which was a testament to the band. It's like, okay, you know. But, then, you know, those kind of things do go on a bit. I mean, it was like, we had to, they were doing something in our rehearsal room. Incidentally, our first rehearsal room where, where we brought, brought uh, wrote a lot of those hits. Um, Joy Division had it after us, because we, we bought a PA, we moved into like another room next door. But um, that Love Will Tears Apart video, that was our rehearsal room where we wrote the songs. And maybe that was a good look room, that, because <laughs> they did Love Will Tears Apart when we left it. <laughs> yeah, good vibes in that room. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was one time, we, we there was something going on in the room, so we had to... Rehearse some new stuff for the first album in a, a Halloween kind of, um, you know, rehab center. So, um, Pete's playing the chords to full speed, and um, I said, I can't hear you, man. I'm over the other side. And this guy's off the heads on heroin, wandering about and coming up to the, you know, we was on this little platform. Yeah. Guy's off the head in this rehab center. I think that's that was really CD punk rock. It was like being in a basement with a velvet underground yeah. <laughs> back in the day. And um, I said to Pete, look, I can't hear you there, you know. I said, don't worry, I don't need to know the chords. And I come up with all them riffs on uh, Pulse Beat, you know, like all them little guitar sequences on there. I said, I'll just, I'll play, I'll, don't don't worry about me, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come up with this. So 
in the face of adversity sometimes, things like that. You know, if I'd have been in the rehearsal room, I'd have gone out of the chords go, you know. But then it was like, I can't hear, so I'm going to do this. And I got all that great, you know, the riffs and the thing on pulse beat. And the other reason I mentioned that song is because um, that was like the experimental side of the band on our first album, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and and the number two on the first album, and another music in a kit, different kitchen. You know, um, promises, like I was saying earlier, we we um, uh, not promises, uh, autonomy. Um, with autonomy, you know, I, I was listening to Can and these German bands trying to sing English, you know, mm-hmm. and it sounded a bit weird, you know. Say, for instance, if they were going like, "I I want you, Mother Sky," and all that, so I was thinking. I'll pretend to be an English guy, being a German, trying to sing English. (laughs) Very arty. I've never done it since. I thought I must have been in a weird place when I was 20. But, um, (laughs) you know, and uh, and, um, so on that reel to reel, I must try and I must play. So I'm going like, hey, I want you autonomy. And I come up with the rift and the ding, you know. I I want you or that, and I thought I can't go on the stage singing it like that. It's ridiculous. So it did change, but interesting how how you can get to a song sometimes. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And 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 that one's a particularly good extreme case. You know, of me pretending to be a German trying to sing English. Um, but it became, but um, on the first album, you know, that was like very avant garde because it suddenly wasn't linear. And, and and straight ahead, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Ramones loved us for that. And I read somewhere, Johnny Moore from the Smiths said, when I heard the riff on Autonomy, he said that was the riff of Manchester at the time. I, I, that was like the new sound, you know, a new change. And I never thought about that. But it was a few years ago, a friend of mine said, oh, it, it, read this, what he said about it. And um, quite interesting. That was uh, quite powerful that riff at the time and and the old sort of experimental element to the song in a way a little bit of avant-garde thing in in autonomy you know it wasn't just a straight ahead one yeah oh definitely i think that's the other thing about the buzzcocks is it's you know like you're saying it's not just these really catchy melodic songs or this really fast driving punk stuff it's like the weird guitar interplay or like these sort of like different ideas that are being snuck in there like it's really it is cerebral pop music in the in the ultimate highest use of the term. Yeah, it kind of showcased the band in other ways, you know. We sometimes forget because, you know, Singles Going Steady is a great album and is a bit of avant-garde or a little bit of, you know, different avenues on that. But uh, on the albums, and I think that's only just really coming to the fore sometimes that, you know, we covered a lot of ground, you know. Mm-hmm. Another one on that album was Fiction Romance, a bit similar. I was in was in the studio and Pete had this chug going and I just put that one note in da-da. and I thought that's really avant-garde. All I contributed to that song was one note, but that's the most key note you can, you know. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's you know, without that note the song don't work, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so those kind of things are important, really. You know, it's kind of uh, weird, but um those songs were like, you know, the buzzcocks in there, sort of buzzcocks, the experimental bit, you know, or a different flavour to things. And when we met the Ramones on the first time we played in New York, they all came to the show, you know, mm-hmm. said they were big fans. And 
relating to what we've just been saying, um, they um, they said, you know, you guys took it, you know, somewhere else. Because, you know, we was big fans of Ramones. Then they kind of said, we're straight ahead, but you guys take it into all these little places in within the song, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I never really thought about it until they said that, really. And it's like, yeah, you're right, you know. Um because, you know, Ramones were a big influence uh, for the straight-ahead ones, but didn't realise they were looking that way. And that was a great compliment from them as well, you know. Oh, absolutely. And you see that too. Joey said, I don't, you know, I, I love the way you guys do on them weird little bits here and there. And I, saw, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said, look, we'll come down real soon and show you how to do them bits, you know. <laughs> but, but it can be a bit, you know, a bit haphazard and a bit, a bit of, this and that, you know, but it's the nature of you, you know, and the dynamics of the band, you know. But um, both shots were good for that, I'd say, as well, you know. Yeah. How long was it, um, or how many gigs did you guys play in between that sort of first big Manchester show and then that um, 100 Club Punk Festival show in London? Like, were you playing a lot around that time, or was it just really sporadically? I think it was sporadically, because we've done that sort of, you know, historic gig and um you know we, we kind of put manchester you know it was still very underground all this stuff it was you had to be in the know i mean the, the music papers but it wasn't like generally nationwide in a set you, you know i mean the music papers are, so i think a few days later we, we was uh, booked in some kind of pub like a bar you know and um we went to this bar and uh they said, will you do two sets? And we're like, what? You know, we, we go on, we do this and we get off. We don't, you know, <laughs> we're not a kind of, we're not entertainers in that way. So there was all these heavy fucking rocking, rockers and bikers all sat in the front with their chains and everything, you know. And we get on and we did the first set and then we was taking a break and the barman said, uh, look guys, here's your 12 bucks. Um, we don't want you to go on for the second half. <laughs> 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 so we knew we were onto something good there. We thought we'd, you know, we thought we'd we'd freak these guys out. You know, they wondered what the fuck we were. They thought we were going to be like Leonard Skinner or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so so what happened? About a week later, after that, so we did that that gig, that this only bar gig, and um, and asked to leave. Right? And then. Um, the next one was that hundred, uh, the hundred club. Well, we did the, the a place called the Rocks that we did, and then we did the hundred club. Uh, um, um, you know, the, the punk rock uh, three day festival. The Pistols played one day, and the Damned and us another day, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and did that feel like to you, like, oh my god, like this is a thing, like because like the Stinky Toys are over from France too, playing it. Like, did it feel like? this is something, there's something happening here, or was it still very underground at that point? No, exactly. You started to think, then, and you could feel the tide turning. You could feel, you know, obviously the papers have been out reporting about this stuff, and um, you could feel, feel things moving then. Yeah, you kind of thought, like, yeah, like, say, Stinky Toys from France, who are these guys? You know, but you start to realize people were welcome to the party, and it was getting a little weird, but... But but great, you know, it's like, wow, this thing's kind of moving, you know. It's got legs. <laughs> and um, 
We also did one around that time, maybe a few weeks later, called The Screen on the Green in Islington. It was a cinema. And when it had finished the cinema, it started about 12 o'clock. And the bill was um, the Sex Pistols, The Clash and the Buzzcocks. Um, and it was a big old cinema. And um, I think it was it was like one pound, like one dollar to see all those bands. <laughs> and... Um, the audience was just full of punk rock people. Uh, and you'd never, I'd never seen that before. You know, they were all kind of dressed up in what you come to know as that, the punk rock sort of look and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the audience was kind of um, kind of flamboyant or in this punk rock way. So then I knew that that crystallized the thing. And it was like, wow, things are really happening now, you know? Yeah. Um, how how much how dangerous was it to be a punk rocker back then? Like obviously people have talked, you know, from you know bands like the Sex Pistols about being attacked back then. Like, did you ever have to worry about that kind of stuff? But was that something real, or is that once again kind of more? Well, not in Manchester, but in the early days, I remember I used to wear the flares, you know, in the seventies and all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then you know, even before that Sex Pistols gig, when we was doing the rehearsals, I had a pair of straight leg jeans, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember standing at a bus stop or being around and point, people going, he's got straight leg trousers on. <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to believe now, but uh, they're going, he must have been in punk rockers, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. You've got a, rea you know, a reaction. And then um, there would be more outrageous people than me as it started to develop. But you'd see like punk rockers on the bus or here and there, you know, around the town. And people were generally shocked. Like, what is this stuff, you know? I mean, they thought it was like the end of the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of frowned at this stuff, yeah. Well, it was front page news at the time, right? Like tabloid headlines, it seems. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was kind of like these filthy punk rockers, the Sex Pistols, and then there's all these other bands, the Buzzcocks, the Clash, and, <laughs> you know, it was all that kind of stuff, you know? They, they've taken over the nation. They're going to destroy the world. <laughs> all that stuff, you know? But, um, we did a local TV show, and um, actually, the the great actor Albert Finney was on there. You know him, and uh, yeah, and um, he was a local guy from Salford in Manchester, and uh, he loved it when we we did a uh, we did this song on there. Um, but what I realised after when I went to a bar is like um, you've got to know how to handle people, and um, People always gave us respect for the music, you know. Mm -hmm. We didn't set our stall too high where it, let's say, where it was an act, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you set yourself as something, you've got to play that part all the time, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I figured I didn't want to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to, like, just go to a bar and do your real-life things, you know. Because you can only write about real life or proper things if if you're living in the real world, you know. You can't write punk rock songs on the fucking 24th, you know, floor of a penthouse building, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it don't work. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. How about some of the other bands in Manchester around them, like Slaughter and the Dogs or, or Sister Ray? Like, were those bands, bands that were, like, on your radar, or were you guys already kind of gone by the time those bands are really getting going? Well, Slaughter and the Dogs played on the bill with the Sex Pistols to us and all that, but I... <clears throat> 
I think they had their idea and they was raucous and this and that. And they was a lot younger than us. Yeah. We was like 20. They was like kids in a way. They were like 16, 17, I think. <laughs> a little bit boisterous, you know. But um, we, we, we'd kind of like hold it down a bit. We knew People knew what the Buzzcocks were and they knew we had the songs and everything else, you know. So we became like the band of Manchester, really. But there was... <clears throat> all those other bands around, you know. I mean, many came, many came for to the party, you know. I mean, lots of bands started to appear, but uh, you know, only the really good ones survived, I think, properly. You know what I mean? If you if you had the thing, you know, it's just the way it works, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those guys were all right, you know. And then there was, like I say, lots of other bands around. And we had like people like Morrissey in the audience sat at the back taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, you know, at, in your wake, there's just so much stuff that kind of comes out of that scene. And like it, it once again, is just that kind of constant mix of, of, you know, and I don't mean that scene. I'm just meaning Manchester in general, but it's that constant mix of kind of like the arty meeting the rock, the real rock and roll. And that's kind of like the Manchester sound. If, if you were going to try and just sum it up to someone without playing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, the town was pretty gray and dead and it was run down discotheques and all kinds of things with not much doing. And then um, that punk rock thing brought Manchester, the town alive, you know, yeah. a sense of identity in the rock and roll world. You know, it's like, we've got our own Manchester band, the Buzzcocks, you know, Mm-hmm. So um, we inspired a lot of people. It's amazing uh, that um, how that happened. But we inspired a lot of people to, you know, to go out and do it themselves and um, inspired the town, really. It was like, you know, Buscocks had put Manchester on the map, which really then, you know, a Scottish scene started to develop, a Sheffield scene, Liverpool scene. <clears throat> I think, in a way, Buscocks sort of, put the provinces on the map. It was like you didn't have to go to London on your hands and knees begging for a deal. Just do it in your hometown, you know. And that's what kind of happened. And when we started doing the shows, <clears throat> you'd go into each town and they'd go, this town was dead and if it weren't for punk rock, now that old 70s disco was a punk rock sort of, um, you know, club and stuff. And every town came alive, you know. Yeah. It did, it, 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 like, like they all came to life, you know. Yeah, um, no, it definitely. It, it, it's amazing how it influenced geography in these places. Like, just like the physical makeup of these spaces is different because of this music. Yeah, and um, we um, um, we got an inspiration award from Mojo a few years back, and I thought, hmm, and they're giving us that one. But what you know, now we're talking about, you kind of think we we did give people a lot of inspiration, you know, which is uh, which is something when you kind of sign up to be in a band you don't expect to do. You're just thinking, you're kind of lucky if you make a record, never mind anything else. But <laughs> because of the way we did it and stuff, um, it inspired a lot of people to go and form the bands and do what they're doing. And lots of other things, it opened their minds to a lot of things, you know. Well, like, you're, I think you're the only band in history that was covered by Camper Van Beethoven and by the Gorilla Biscuits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think that I can't think of any other band that can make that claim. No, I can't. No. I I, I um I remember the camp camp Van Van Bay over doing harmony in my head, didn't he? And stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then uh Sitting yeah. Around at Home was done by the Gorilla Biscuits and Yeah. You know, I heard that um 
I was just in a, you know, shopping in the States on tour once and then I heard that record and like some shop assistant said, This is a great record sitting around at home. <laughs> I'm going, Yeah, I've never heard this before. I hadn't heard it, you know what I mean? It's been going it's going like, Yeah, you know, people know about this record. Yeah. And I said, Fuck yeah. I said, I should have done, I fucking wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a while to hear that song, you know. It took me a while. It took me a while. I didn't know what was going on for ages. Maybe we was on tour in Europe, and, and but that was a great compliment as well. Yeah, it's, um, it was. Um, I say I didn't know, but I just kind of hear about it. There. There's some band on sitting around at home, um, but I never got to hear it. Nobody sent me one. I really took no record company told me about it. It was just like word of mouth. You'd bump into people. And like I say, a few people didn't even know it was the Buzzcocks of some of them, you know. Well, it, I think it's once again a great compliment uh, to the Buzzcocks that here you are influencing New York hardcore, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and adding the tunefulness to that. Like, it's amazing how informative that music was on, on you know, Walter from the Gorilla Biscuits has been on the show a couple of times and I will scold him for never sending you a copy of that record uh, next time <laughs> I talk to him. But, you know, it's amazing how informative you were on him. And, you know, I've had people on that were informed by his music, like just like how explosive that energy still is to this day. Like there's still the trickle down and the direct influence is still being felt. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great thing, you know, um, I say when you set out to do this, you don't expect all them kind of things. And um, it's, there's so many American bands we've been, well, lots of people around the world, really. But uh, many times in America, I meet people and you think, wow, this is amazing. You didn't really expect to be sort of influencing people that much, you know. But we did have a distinctive thing, I guess, you know. It was, the Buzzcocks are very unique. When you put the, you know, you put a Buzzcocks record on, you know that that's definitely the Buzzcocks, you know. Yeah, oh, definitely. And then you can hear echoes of Buzzcocks in a lot of bands as well. After that, can't you? You hear some records and go, oh, "That's a bit Buzzcocksy that one." Yeah, we can see. But um, that's been a great, you know, it's a great honour to do really in that way for uh, people to um, to have inspired people in that way to do their own thing with it and um and and like i say i guess we we put a lot of melody in it and everybody loves a bit of a tune really as well you know i suppose we brought that home a bit you know and all the riffs are very tuneful you know they're not really sort of blues riffs or something they're like little guitar motifs in their own right you know and then sometimes you know on interviews you know we talk about books and stuff like that you know i used to say like well you know when I've gone by a hit single as a kid, I'd buy some book writer's hit single, you know. <laughs> it's amazing when you look at, you brought up some of those scenes earlier, like the stuff that went on in Scotland and the stuff certainly that went on with the twee music and, and stuff that went on in Wales too. And like how a lot of the stuff that got taken up in UK indie music was directly more informed by the Buzzcocks than a Sex Pistols Clash or, or Damned influence. Like no one's, like they're they're going towards that tunefulness. They're going towards that bookness. They're going towards that experimentalness more than they're going towards the outlandishness or the or the outright sloganeering of some of the other bands. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot more complexity in it. I guess you know. Mm -hmm. I suppose me and Pete were complex as people. You know, we were misfits, oddballs in our way. You know, I always said I'm a conscientious objector to work. You know. <laughs> 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 um, 
we knew we wouldn't fit in. You know, I couldn't imagine Pete Shelley doing a job on myself as much. You know, somebody doing a regular job when I was a kid, I was like, they're the heroes, you know. <laughs> um, but we couldn't do it, so we had to do this. You know? <laughs> um, it, that's how it kind of works out. But we did offer a lot of things, and the words were a little bit complex as well, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sort of straight A to Z of, like, you know, the regular music in some ways, you know what I mean? As much as I love rock and roll and everything else, we realised there was, you know, we'd put a few odd complex words in and different things, a different approach to it. But that was natural to us. It wasn't contrived or anything. But also, it was kind of saying, like, you know, there's things in the books as well as the records. Arm yourself with everything you can. Because when they fucking come for you, you've got to have your fucking defence, you know? Yeah. It was just like, you know, the books can save you and the records can save you and all can save you. you know? it's, uh, and going back to that Velvet Underground thing, you know, Andy Warhol opened it up a bit, making it a bit arty, didn't he, and that kind of thing. You know, opening people's minds that way with it, you know. It wasn't like, once like some impresario kind of going like, well, put you guys together and we'll make you stars. You know, it wasn't about that, really, you know. <laughs> Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's like that authenticity and that, like, that's why I brought up emo earlier. Like the, it's the lyrical yeah. approach where it's not like, you know, like all the other bands we keep, I, well, I keep bringing up, I'm sorry to keep harping back to the same bands, but like, you know, just cause it's like the, the Mount Rushmore of, of first wave punk, you know, it's, it's, but you are the guys that are, are writing about, you know, relationships or writing about politics that are in a direct personal way that's different than you know, sloganeering or some of the other stuff that some of the other approaches that are going on. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was that kind of thing where it's like, I didn't want to sell the audience. I don't think Pete did that. Look, um, you know, it's the government that wrong. It, it's not that simple. You know, the government can be wrong many, many times or whatever. It was like, you know, we, we're not going to tell you what you already know. You know what I mean? It was like, it's a lot more complex than that. So let's look at the other things around it, you know. We always said, look, we've got the questions, but we ain't got the answers. <laughs> you know, nobody's got the answers. <laughs> well, I have yeah. I have punished you for many, many answers today, Steve. And at some point in the future, would you come back and do a part two on this podcast? Absolutely, yeah. But before I let you go, can I ask you a couple more questions? Sure, yeah. Okay, uh, one thing I've always wanted to know, because I think a super underrated band is Flag of Convenience. Um, mm. I think you guys have some incredible records and some unbelievable songs there, and I just kind of wanted to find out a little bit about that band, how it came together, and a little bit about you guys. You guys did your own label, especially towards the end, right? MCM Records? Yeah, because what happened was, um, you know, it became the 80s. When it became the 80s, anybody with a guitar was seen like the devil or something you know <laughs> you know it's like you, you had to play you know a keyboard with one finger and stuff and all that kind of thing and sequences and all that and so you kind of fish out of water then you know so um, but I, I made this record and I put a chorus pedal on it and all that and, and I got a deal with Sire Seymour Stein now I had a meeting with him in uh, Fortnum and Masons about doing an album and I said, okay, I've made you the kind of 80s-sounding single, which I liked, um, but I want to do an album now called The Accused, and I want it to sound like uh, 
the Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> and he was horrified. He's going, this is the 80s. I've just signed this young girl, Madonna. She's going to be big, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the accused, that's a bit ominous, isn't it? I said, well, I'm backing down, man. I'm sticking to my guns. And so we left Sire from there, you know. We did a great single, great 12-inch EP out there. But um, um, when you stick to your guns, it's a tougher road, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're thinking, fuck, if I'd have got one of them keyboards and put, you know, some makeup on, maybe I could have got through. <laughs> but I'm going, you know, nobody will fucking believe me. And I didn't, that wasn't me, you know. Um, but, yes, yeah, so then we formed our own label then. And there was that kind of cartel. And it was a great time for indie music then. If You know, like in the States, you had all those college stations with their college charts and it, rock pool and all that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you think how, how wonderful all those were, you know, before the corporate control took over, um, uh, the American scene was great for all that. I used to, um, you know, find Jack Rabbit and people like that and uh, send me these things, look, you know, number two or three in the Rockpool charts and the college radios are playing, which was a great thing in the States. And, and over here in Britain, we had like the cartel of different uh, record labels doing distribution and deal with things on a different level, which was... Completely the opposite to all the 80s things, that you know, the Hall and Oaks and all these people that were going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like another world in itself. So I, I absorbed myself in that world. And um, um, so, you know, with Flag of Convenience, I did lots. Uh, I did. I tried a lot of styles because really it was the first time I'd formed a band with, without the Buzzcocks, you know, um, and I, I didn't do any Buzzcock songs at first, and uh, I didn't do any, much anyway, but uh, we had so many of these other songs, and I was trying different things out on each album, you know. wouldn't mind getting a box out someday, oh, yeah. that, you know. And um, I was going to ask, did you guys, did you do demos for that first LP that you were talking about doing on Sire? Um, no, I think we just gave them those three songs. But I did a lot of demos personally, you know, personally yeah. funded them, because I just like going in the studio and be like, well, I've got these songs now, let's go in and do them. And um, a guy John, called John Fiegler lived in uh, New Jersey. He knew Jack Rabbit and he uh, he came to see me. And I said, well, I've got, you know, you can have a listen to those cassettes there. Troll out what you like. And he came up with this album, War on the Wireless set, you know. Yeah. He said, I'd like to put those out. But there's probably still more. I, I, I have found other stuff, later flag like of convenience stuff on cassettes. Um of all kinds of different styles of songs. Cause I wanted each album to be kind of different each time. And the members changed each time as well, quite often, you know. Um, but it was kind of good playing with different people as well, because that was kind of new for me. And um, and so we did a, a, a you know a different journey on that. But um, Terry Red Records put out the best of Flag of Convenience, but really that's only a taste of it, you know, maybe there's 12 songs on there, or maybe a few more, but um, you know, there's a lot more sort of hanging around, which I must get down to um, because after that I did my Steve Diggle solo band, I thought well guys keep coming and going uh, If I and a guy, guy said to me, a guy managing me said call it Steve Diggle and then if people leave I'll come and go <laughs> you don't have to keep explaining why the guy left you know he got married and had 10 kids or something, you know. Um, and um, so I, I had a box set called um, um, 
What's it called? Oh, fucking, I can't remember the name. <laughs> There's a Steve Diggle box set. Um, oh, I just can't I'll put it in the description. Wheel, I'll figure it out and put it wheel, in the description. The wheel, Wheels of Time is called. Yeah. It's been a long day. I've been out all day. Um, but um, so um, so there's a box set of four or five albums in that, you know. It was going to be a trilogy of three albums. And I think I, I, I did one at the end, so I, I made it four, you know. Um, so there's a box set of that. But the flag of convenience years is uh, nicest to feel, you know, say uh, needs to be documented a bit more, I think, you know. Well, especially because you're like saying that they, the you know the stuff. My favorite, I think, is uh, should I ever go deaf? I love that twelve inch, but like everything yeah. sounds different. Like the stuff on Buzzcocks FOC sounds nothing like stuff on the Change single. Um, you know, it's all different. Yeah, exactly. I I wanted to sort of get on that journey and do the different ones. Then I'd say that they they should I ever go deaf comes off uh, the Northwest Skyline album. Yeah, which, oh, yeah, uh, of course. Which is it's got its own sound and. A lot of people love that album, and uh, and I love it. And um, I think um, it came out an album, but I don't think on CD at the time. It'd be nice to have a CD now as well. Um, but it'd be nice. but then then there was um, all the other albums as well, um, and a lot of singles and stuff that um, haven't come out. You know, uh, all that came out and um, needs to be sort of documented. You know, sometimes making these box sense uh, set makes sense of things i guess you know what i mean like oh that was that was that period you know yeah um so in that way it's good to do that because you know there's even people discovering the later buscott stuff like that but the fine convenience stuff was uh yeah it's some great stuff there you know it was just at the time you know i was fighting so much you get in the, your head down in the traps it's like new songs all the time it's like well let's just keep rolling with it you know <laughs> Because it's one thing about this, you never know the minute when it, it might stop or what's going to happen and everything else. And even like, you know, because it's COVID, I'd time to look back and think, well, you know, I'm so glad I did that at this time or I, I did that there and, you know, I did that because you kind of think you can always do it again and, you know, yeah, you can do it next week, but sometimes it might not be next week, you know. So there's that thing, but... Um, yeah, it's a lot of good flag of convenience stuff there that needs to be uh, sort of documented a bit more, I guess, yeah. What kind of bands would you be playing with, with flag of convenience? Like, as you mentioned, it's going, you know, it spans like quite a time period. So, but like, were there like other UK indie bands or like what kind of bands were they slotting you in with? Well, um, we we headlined our own tours over here, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we did have a key, the keyboard that played on Running Free, which I've got, which I can't believe, you know, 40 odd years it's been around in different <laughs> houses. And um, I, on running free, I run that, free, I bought it for like $100, 100 pounds, and uh, second hand old like keyboard organ. And, um, and and I put it on running free on the Buzzcocks uh, track. And I run it through a Watkins copycat echo thing. And it that sounds really weird. But uh, we had that on the stage in the early days. And of course, when those new romantics and 80s people came along, um, some would be stood at the front thinking we're going to be like you know they've got a keyboard maybe there'd be an 80s band <laughs> but you know as soon as the guitars kicked in someone would run like fuck <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry mate we're not Madonna you know I know you saw the keyboard but <laughs> um, now there's these guitars um, but, but um, I do remember playing the locomotive in France which is right next to the Moulin Rouge and it's a big place, so it's two and a half thousand people, right? 
I'd been there on some, my brother was doing a paint for Factory Records there, they had a week there. And uh, and um, the guy said, I love the Buscots, will you come back and play? So a few weeks later, we came back and played. And they took me out for a meal. And in those days, I drank loads of red wine, thinking, I mean, it's a Tuesday night, maybe we might only get a few hundred there, you know. And I'm walking back thinking, who are all these people, you know? <laughs> and they're waiting for the Merlon Rue. So they said, no, they, they've come to see you. I thought, fuck, I shouldn't have got so drunk. That night. <laughs> <laughs> I just put my head in the sink. And I played... I played the played the two and a half thousand people, and they'd never really heard any of these songs, <laughs> and they were singing along with them. I thought, well, that's a testament to some of the choruses, you know, yeah. had them singing along. And some of the song we had this song called Forever, which is a lovely song, and that's never been released. You've just reminded me now. I must dig that out. Um, but that was kind of amazing. But from that one, um, we went on to the Metropole. It was some kind of music week. And I do remember we did, um, we played with Mud Honey and someone else on that. But, you know, it was kind of like a music week, kind of festival week. And we played this big place called the Metropole in Berlin. And uh, Mud Honey were on the bill and a few others actually, yeah. But essentially, we played on our own a lot then, you know. Yeah. Maybe we had some support bands uh, and stuff, but you <clears throat> was kind of fish out of water. But, you know, we was appealing to the people that were starting to guitar music, but believe me, them you know, nine eighty two and that was kind of weird, you know, because because you know they wanted all the uh, kind of you know that eighties electronic kind of sound and stuff, you know, and people dance go go dances with you and all that stuff. <laughs> it was a very weird time. Well, yeah, and it's when you guys come back as the Buzzcocks that that's really the return of guitar music, right? Like, did it feel that way coming back, like with Mega City Four yeah. and all those bands starting in? Yeah, I mean, I'd made all them lovely albums uh, with Flag of Convenience all during that time, uh, during the eighties, and doing these uh, gigs and stuff. <clears throat> you know, you played universities and they got it and stuff, but. Um, you was definitely kind of like a fish out of water at that moment, you know, but, and um, then we got the bus, you know, we got the call, well, you, you never did a farewell tour of the States or anywhere, so we we did the, uh, we said, okay, yeah, we haven't seen each other for eight years, all of us, you know, I'd seen Pete around, we'd had a few drinks, but not um, everybody in the room, and we, that's when we came to the States, you know, it's like, okay, we'll do the, like a, two or three week tour I think it was and then I guess that'll be it nobody planned anything and then it went on from there do you want to go to Australia Japan and uh, Britain want you to headline the Brixton Academy and all that stuff so we did that and and that's what got us back yeah and like you say 1989 guitar music come back but also at the same time in the States you had a band called Nirvana you know mm -hmm. the grunge music was happening Absolutely. And you guys were on that last tour, right? Like the last, the infamous That's last right. tour. Well, the great thing about the grunge was it's like I hear guitars again. You know, and then you talk to Kurt and Dave Grohl and all them people, you know, who was on the, their last tour. And, um, they, you know, they was big Buzzcocks fans. And it's like, well, this this has all come full circle and makes sense. You know, Kurt was influenced by the punk rock and he's doing grunge now, but inspired by punk rock. And so... It was like, well, thank God the world's changed from all that 80s fucking bullshit, you know. 
fucking foot loose and all that crap, you know. <laughs> you know, and um, Huey Lewis and the news and that fucking nonsense, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's like, hold on a minute here. And um, so when Kurt was doing that, so yeah, um, he came to see us in Boston. And well, when Team Spirit was number one, and uh, we was playing in Boston, it was the, we had that album Trade Test Transmissions, mm. and we had the television screens up there. I had six behind me, and then there was six, you know, there was a, the whole back line was full of them. And I used to smash them every night at the end, you know. Yeah. It's kind of thing the move were doing in 1965, you know, and and all that. But we was doing a film, and I was kind of thinking, you know, I played the gig, we're all excited, what can I do now? I'll smash the smash the the um um the televisions you know it's exciting and the but you know the crowd loved it and i loved it it's like yeah this is getting rid of your your extra adrenaline yeah um so in boston um we came off the stage i smashed the six televisions behind me and um somebody said nafari and then they come walking in they you know teen spirit was number one and then mine was number and then came up and he said I love the way you smash the televisions man <laughs> so <laughs> I said um, I said well I've been doing it all around Britain and all around Europe and I said I knew, you know if you hit the wrong component in it I said you get an electric shock and uh, you know you go up and smoke yourself I said, <laughs> and I said it nearly happened to me one night it was only the adrenaline got me off the the mic stand you know yeah and um he said, really? I said, but I've perfected the art now. I swing the mic stand and it has to be like a round bass thing or whatever. Uh, 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 hit the middle of the screen and it implodes and the smoke comes out if you do it right. And I said, I've perfected the art. And he said, I've only smashed one television. I said, you're not live, man. I'll show you how to do it one time. <laughs> <laughs> but but he loved that. And we got on well, great. And um, he said, well, when we come to Europe, will you do some shows with us? And so we did the last 11... <laughs> Uh, you know, 11 or 12 shows with him in, uh, in Europe, you know. Obviously, punk rock has had many sort of false pronouncements of its death over the years, but, you know, that certainly was one of them. So here you are at that Lesser Free Trade Show Hall, and then all these years later playing what many in the music press are calling at the time, you know, the death of punk rock. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, the... There was always that thing, oh, it must be all over now. But it, it's like a party, it can't last forever. But I think what resounds about it, one, well, particularly in the Buzzcocks case, but in a lot of cases, it's like, one, the songs survive, mm -hmm. and the attitude kind of survives. People can relate to the attitude. I, I think I think it gives people a lot of self-worth, you know, including the band, you know. Oh, for sure. Oh, you know definitely. what I mean? I think when you're sort of, punk rock record it give you a little spring in your step you know you know it's like you felt like you were part of the record you know he's singing to me or we're all part of the same thing here you know it's, it's there's not a distance there and um you know the guy's talking direct or the music's coming direct to me so uh, you know i think i think all that has lived on you know and then it's you know, even like in the grunge days, you, you can tell it directly come from punk rock. Without oh, yeah. punk rock, the grunge wouldn't have happened. But, you know, the grunge went in different, you know, same as Eddie Vedder. I mean, he, he came to a lot of shows, you know. Eddie's, you know, a good friend of mine. You know, he come to the shows before uh, Pearl Jam mm -hmm. and things like that. And it inspired him, you know, as well. So um, I think that that well is still there, you know. 
and I think still young kids, uh, you know, can take something from that and hopefully take it somewhere else, you know. You don't have to copy the ones they're listening to, but take it somewhere else. And the great thing about it is, you know, you don't need any complicated thing. You just need yourself and a guitar or a drum or a bass, you know. Yeah, and it goes back to like the very beginning of the conversation where you were talking about, you know, how to necessity you guys put out your own single and you're not the first band, mm. as you mentioned, that ever put out their own single, but there's just something about the way you did it that, that to this day inspires bands. Yeah, I mean, because without all that inspiration, then it is all over, but it's always going to be some little kid in a room or some girl sat in a room with a little guitar and goes, you know what, I... I love that stuff, but I'm going to do, you know, I'll take that and do it my way, you know. And I think that's where the punk rock hasn't died, you know what I mean? In fact, it's amazing. I think it's had a lot more impact than a lot of things, you know. Apart from the birth of rock and roll, and maybe the hippies in Woodstock for a moment, I mean, punk rock is the next real, you know, powerful thing that's inspired everybody. And like, you know has set up a thing that, you know, you can take things from or, you know, you know, be inspired to do things yourself, you know. You know, it's a bit of a life changer, really. I mean, even even going back to that spiky hair in the 80s, when I saw bank managers with spiky hair, when you go in the bank, you thought, fuck, they laughed at that about five years <laughs> earlier. You know, that was the irony, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well like you know you went from being a band that was infamous for the name to being a band with tv shows named after your name yeah well when we first went to the states and uh we did an interview i forget who it was with now but um he said you're kind of buzzcocks you'll never make it in the states with a name like that <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing about all that when you're told that you know that won't be happening. You know you're on the right track, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You kind of learned something from that. If somebody hates it, doesn't like it and everything, which can crush you as an artist or as a young guy as a musician, there's always somebody telling you no. In every job you're doing, it's just not music. But it, as soon as they tell you that, you go, okay then, I'll be back next week with fucking something like, you know what I mean? Sometimes you need to kick a brick wall to bang your head against or something, you know. And hopefully, you know, and and the thing about the punk rock is, you, you, you know, maybe we'll get us off our iPads a little bit, you know. You know, I, 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 I'm soaked into the, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if you do, um, if you took the iPads and phones off us all, we'd all be in like some kind of technological rehab, you know, yeah. worse than heroin and all that stuff. Um, but it, it's the physicality and the men mentality of the thing, you know. I mean, I've got big home recording studios, I've got all kinds of things, but I've just been writing a new Buzzcocks album during, the, uh, you know, lockdown. You know, post Pete, now we've got to move on. And um, we quickly put a single out because we managed to do eight days in Britain and we was going to do the West Coast tour, which we're looking forward to, and the punk rock bowling. Mm -hmm. And then the COVID came. Um, but um, I've been writing my... Um, and, um, you know, I've got the drum machines and all the fucking bullshit, you know, but um, I've been writing like like back to square one again, you know, just with me and the guitar standing up there with a the guitar and writing it like that, you know. 
Yeah. And I found that's the fundamental thing of doing it, you know, because you get sidetracked with gimmicks and things, um, and you don't need that. In fact, I've gone back to a four-track cassette player, <laughs> and um, I will roll the drum machine. There's a little backbeat in the distance. It might not always be in time when the guitar changes, but it's, I just need the noise at the back sometimes. But essentially, I've just stood in a room with myself, trying to portray um, something through the guitar and through the words, you know. Yes. And I've not even touched the, you know, half it's done in my head now, you know. But but that comes from who you are again, you see what I mean? It's, it's that's any good advice to anyone. And if you can stand there and sing a song like that, you can put a fucking orchestra or whatever you want behind it afterwards. But don't get sidetracked with all this fucking techno crap and loops, loops and, you know, everything sounds good on a computer, you know. But, um, you know, the the human thing is, is something else, you know. Yeah. Well, like you're saying, it all comes back that, you know, like you did those first reel-to-reel -reel demos, just you and the guitar <laughs> yeah. and the reel. I was 20 years old. I, I look back and think, how did I do that now, you know? Yeah. I never thought I just... <laughs> That's all you had, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was just like I'd bang it down on a reel-to-reel, -reel, just no, like, um, extra tracks or anything. That was unheard of, you know. It was just like, well, so I can remember it tomorrow or something, you know. But that's all you had. But that's what I'm going back to, the fundamental things of that. Because going back to Chuck Berry and Little Richard, you know, I mean, they just stood there with a guitar and played, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think there's something in there, and I think, you know, don't lose your way with these things. <laughs> and also, I think it gets to the essence of who we are. And back to the Buzzcocks uh, records and all the records I've done, it's like you play the track live, the band's on. If the song's good enough, you can be the worst player in the world. But if the song works, you can work with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, uh, uh, and, um, um, and and that's kind of all you need, really, that fundamental thing of that, you know. But, um, you know, the, unless it's some effects technology, you know, you, 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 too, you get sidetracked with all that. But also, we're getting to the truth and the real thing of who you are and what you're saying and all that. So I've kind of gone back to that. And, uh, and, and the four-track cassette play, uh, because I'm thinking, at the very most, I'd use a drum machine just to keep me a bit happy sometimes, isn't it? But um, essentially, it's like, well, you're on your own with this. You can't be, like, multi-tracking stuff and, you know, trying to polish a turd, if you like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like either the song's good or it ain't. So, you know, you've got to take it as it is. But it's something interesting about that. And a lot of them punk rock songs, you know, that we'd go in and record three backing tracks, pick the best one and put the riffs and a few vocals and away we go, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but that's it, and it helps to anyone out there. Don't forget who you are, you know. It's like, who you are is what it is, really. You know, um, the way you translate through the guitar and who you are as a person. And that's the most simple thing we forget sometimes, because we think, oh, I want to sound great like this, or I want to do this. And I said, hold on a minute, you know. You're trying for things that, that are not you, you know what I mean? Or you think might make it... You, you'd be better, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's not that same. Once you've got a song, I mean, you can do anything you want with it. You can make it into a jazz song or do anything else or whatever you want to do with it. But uh, finding that initial thing's the great thing, you know. 
This has been incredible, Steve. And one last question, just going back to what you said about the Ramones coming to you and, and them saying almost like you were the next evolution of what they were doing, like them telling you you were the next evolution of what they were doing. Who did you kind of feel were the next evolution of what you guys were doing or who was taking what your inspiration was the way you thought it should go, you know, in the same way, I mean. Well, I've heard a lot of things on the way, even like the Camper Van, a Van uh, Beethoven track. When I heard that back in the, the time, I thought, wow, they put a keyboard in it and stuff and <laughs> done that different, you know. So there's little things like that along the way. And, of course, with Nirvana and people like that, you, you kind of think, well, there's buzzcocks in there somewhere. But, you, you, you know, you could tell, you know, at that point that, they was coming from the punk rock well a bit, you know. In fact, yeah. I saw on lockdown uh, the Pearl Jam. They said Jeff's done a version of sitting round at home. The bass player Jeff. Oh, there's going to be a, a, a battle of the covers now between them and the Gorilla Biscuits, I guess. <laughs> it's a well, yeah. He'd it, it, it done it at home. I, I, I think he's released it as a B side of some singing he may be doing, but he was just doing it in lockdown. Him and the. Uh, his mate on drums, you know. It's the ultimate lockdown some, song, really. Like, you, you kind of pre-foretold this years ago. Well, that's it, yeah. I've had a, I've had a few people like that saying, you've written the thing, because <laughs> I had that song, Isolation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> sitting, sitting, sitting around at home. <laughs> they're, like, they're all COVID-friendly. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Boredom. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of unfortunately, yeah. relatable topics right now <laughs> in, the, in the negative way yeah. this time. And you kind of think, Fuck, you never envisage that those songs would become to mean something like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, Steve, you want to come back on, you have the patience for this show, please know you're always welcome. Listen, it'll be a pleasure. We'll do part two because we've only co we've covered a lot of ground, but it's still a lot more ground, really, I guess, in a way, isn't it, over that, all that time, you know? <laughs> Thank you, Steve, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, Steve Diggle will be back for a part two in the future. Whew, I can't wait. How amazing is that? The legend, the legend. I didn't even tell him about this, but actually my dad partied with him one time back in 2000. So we'll save that for part two. You know, it's a familial connection that we have. Speaking of parties, next week on the show, we have one hell of a party. In celebration of a brand new No Effects record, we have not one, but two episodes next week with a debuting member of No Effects and a returning member of No Effects to turn out a punk. First coming to the show for the first time, Eric Smelly Sandin, and it is a incredible episode. We go into a lot of different stuff. Uh, a great companion piece if you've read that No Effects book, because this kind of sits alongside that. We we refer to that, and it's a it's a fun conversation. He was actually the nicest member of No Effects back in the day when I met him in the '90s. So we we get into that story on the show, and then rounding out No Effects week, returning to the show for a part two, perhaps the most infamous episode ever. Fat Mike is back, and it is a. Well, it's not 180 degrees from the last time he was on. It's definitely a completely different vibe from the last time he was on. But we still argue like crazy. Oh my gosh, we fight. It, it really begs the question, how can two people that love punk and hardcore so much see it so differently after a certain point? But <laughs> we talk about that on the show. Oh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. So sign up, get involved, show up, 
a volunteer, do, sign petitions, talk to people around you. Just, just fuck fascism. Fuck fascism in all its forms and don't let it creep in. Also, sign your organ owner cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. You're just like, take it. I don't, I don't need this shit. Get it out of me. Get this out of my body. I got to die now. So, but seriously, sign your organ donor cards. And on a more cheery note, go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a zine. Start a, start a, a, a Twitch. You know, start a Twitter. Start something. Just make something. Be creative. Express yourself. You don't have to show other people either. Just, you know, for yourself. You can do it anonymously too. Not to be mean to people. I mean, just, yeah, you know, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Uh, and, uh, wear a mask, stay safe, and I'll see you next episodes of the show. No effects, no effects, no effects, no effects. Oh boy. It's a hot one. That fat Mike one. It's a hot one. Get ready. Get ready to get angry. Well, maybe, maybe you're going to be angry at me at the end of it. Maybe you're going to side with fat Mike on some of these things. If you do, God help you. But anyway, okay. Thank you everyone for listening. See you next episode. Zzz.